Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. It's a pleasure to be bringing you a subject-specific episode today. And Steve, it's about one of my favourite curriculum areas, history. That's right, Russell, it is indeed. And listeners might remember that we've recorded one episode linked to history before, where we looked at the theme of diversity. Today, we're going to be thinking about some other aspects of the subject, including chronology, misconceptions, and lots of stuff about curriculum design. In order to do this, we're really pleased to be joined by the wonderful Stuart Tiffany, who's going to be helping us out today. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Hi, guys. It's uh, lovely to be here. And I have to say, I know the two people that were on the diversity webinar, uh, Paul and Karen, and it was an absolute cracker. Love that one. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. We enjoyed that. That was probably a year or so ago now, wasn't it? It was in the first lockdown. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Stuart, we've connected with you through both Facebook and Twitter. And I'll say right now that you have to be one of the most helpful and supportive people we've met online. Uh, tell us about your background and why history is your passion. Um, well, I've, I've genuinely always loved history. Fond memories of childhood holidays, uh, walking in the ruins of abbeys, castles and around many museum. Um, that's probably one of the few ways to keep my brother and I vaguely uh, calm and not killing each other, (laughs) joys of two boys, I guess. And it's just cool when you can link pieces of the past together and just make it that tiny bit clearer. My degree, uh, Leeds Trinity, uh, Trinity All Saints as it was, uh, was in education. And then the history department did some modules, so I have some degree level history. That did put my love of the subject to the test. I can say that very happily with a grin on my face. Um, I spent genuinely two semesters on Victorian agriculture. Nobody in the world (laughs) needs to spend two semesters on Victorian agriculture. So I love it, but there are limits, I have to confess. Awesome. That's such a good intro. Um, And let's start with a really easy question then. Stuart, which primary history topic most excites you and why does it? I mean... Number one, you can't ask that question. It, it's not a fair question. <laughs> I'm, I'm breaking the rules and I'm having two. No problem. Good, because I'm doing it anyway. Um, <laughs> number one, Romans, because mm. absolute favourite since I was a child. My, I'm based uh, West Yorkshire, grew up in Leeds, and Roman York, just wandering around the city walls. And my great aunt, who sadly is no longer with us, uh, she was very into history and she could just narrate Roman York and it was awesome and just as I've gone through always loved them some of the bizarre anecdotal knowledge things like the Romans ate dormice one of my favorite gross facts is um, the Romans did eat dormice and they had this lovely little pot with holes in it that um, you'd put your dormice in and keep putting food in give it a shake when you couldn't hear it shaking you knew it was ready to eat <laughs> so it is ancient foie gras it, that's one of those ones where I got told it and I don't want it not to be true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if anybody wants to tell me it's not true, don't. As it's uh, it's one of those classics. And then my, my most recent love from the last curriculum is early Islamic history. That was one of the additions on the uh, most recent curriculum. I'll say what I call it, the new curriculum, even though it's nearly eight yeah. years old. Yeah. Um, it's just fascinating. There are so many cool, purposeful, wonderful things to learn. And it's something I didn't know anything about. Mm. And it's, it just absolutely captured my attention. 
Awesome. That sounds really, really cool. Mm. And asking a history specialist to pick one thing that they love was yeah. a bit of a mean question to get started. It wasn't quite as yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> you did well. You did very well. So look, Stuart, over the past few years, there's been a real challenge for primary schools in terms of curriculum design, wanting to revamp curriculum, make sure they're uh, well sequenced and so on. One thing I've seen discussed a lot online is this idea of kind of big or substantive ideas or concepts that are threaded throughout the different units uh, we've put on in our curriculum. Can you give us some examples of what these sorts of threads might actually be and where might they come up in different units? Okay, yeah. So there's two types of concept and this is what's really hard to be a primary teacher at the moment as it's very much a secondary approach to teaching that is the current trend and therefore trying to be a specialist in 12 plus subjects is clearly achievable for a lot of people. (laughs) Um, So number one, that's the substantive ideas, which we'll come back to in a second. But number two, and this one is equally important, is that sense of history as a discipline. Yeah. So when we talk about history as a discipline, it's basically it's what turns a list of facts into historical knowledge. So it's how we make use of them. Mm. In terms of the threads that run through your curriculum, both are really important, if that makes sense. And it's really sad that I can quote the curriculum aims from memory. I, I know and you can laugh away because it is. <laughs> um, in terms of that kind of substantive knowledge, there's two curriculum aims that I always suggest people look at. And that's number three and number six. For disciplinary concepts, it's number four and number five. Okay. So number three and number six with this answer, really. So number three, it lists some examples, empire, parliament, peasantry. I'm not going to put in any political satire about a certain branch of government putting the word peasantry in. You can have your own mind up on that one if you wish. They're useful terms. And this is where history is a bit of a, a weird subject in that you can't just teach things with a generic definition. The reason you can't do that is because the meaning is totally variable depending on when in the past you're learning about, which is a bit of a nightmare. So there's there's no way around. So it's kind of thinking, well, what does that look like within the story, that story of the period of history that we're teaching about at the moment? Number six is really important and it's so often missed because it's the top of the next page. Mm. Formatting, eh? Um, I showed it to a friend of mine who's uh, got a background in graphic design. She just laughed. <laughs> kind of, that wasn't thought through. And that's that really talks about applying kind of applying knowledge into different contexts. It's got local, regional and national history, which is something we can come back to. But the main bit here is these branches of history. So social, cultural, economic, religious, political, economic, military. I copied those down in my notes. Um, <laughs> I don't want people to think I can literally verbatim because that would just be what a nerd. Um, so in terms of what I'm thinking about these ideas, they are not the guiding light of in this lesson, I'm covering this. In this lesson, I'm covering that. The reason that doesn't work is because you get those isolated factoids. Mm. And if you just get an isolated fact, it, it, it actually doesn't fit that cohesively. And because of what we said before about having to have that clear sense of story, that clear sense of narrative, it doesn't actually function purposefully. So what I do is I plan my sequence based around inquiry questions, which are historically valid questions. It's how historians study the past. And then after I've done that, I'll check how that meets those different branches in a purposeful way. I've got an example, if you'd like it. Please. Absolutely. So this example, what I'll do is I'll just kind of give you a couple of tales of it. So we're going to look at the idea of government. And 
this links to pretty much every one of those branches uh, for different ways. So the reason why, so we have these little kind of, actually it's this for that reason, it's that for that reason. So if you try and plan in the concept of government to be entirely political, then you're missing its function in various other aspects. And we can basically, we can introduce this in EYFS. And um, before I introduce it in EYFS, I'm going to give a very strong caveat. I never, ever dictate to the foundation stage what they must teach. Mm. And the reason I never do that is because their curriculum is fundamentally different to ours. They are finishing off the naught to five curriculum and we and key stage one year one begins anew with key stage one to three from that so but essentially you can introduce a gov- the concept of government as soon as you read a fairy tale pretty much because in most fairy tales you have a monarchy so you've got a king queen prince princess and literally all i will do is if i'm reading a story to the children all i will do is say oh who's heard of a king before who's heard of a queen before well in this story they are very important. What they can do is they make decisions for all of their kingdom. That's a very rudimentary introduction to the idea. And then I might say, depending on how fidgety they are, I am not an early years practitioner by trade. So this is based on my few soirees into there, just to throw it out there. And then I'll say to them, did you know we've got we've got a king? We've got a king. Oh, no, I've killed off Elizabeth too early. Whoops. <laughs> oh, no, I instantly regret saying that, but you can totally keep it in. Um, we've got a queen at the moment. She's called Elizabeth II. And that allows me to just say, well, actually, this fictional knowledge is factually viable as well. Yeah. And we could say, well, how are they similar? How are they different? And the nice thing about this idea is you can introduce this through storytelling and role play in the areas of provision make sure that we teach children what it is. It's a monarchy. Children love learning new words. At the very least, we've exposed them to it. Mm. And then as they go through school, when if they learn about, oh, Great Fire of London, let's say, because one of my favourite facts is 80% of primary schools teach the Great Fire of London, according to the last Historical Association survey. I don't quite understand why 80% of children need to learn about 17th century fire. No way near to where they live, but sure, we'll go with it. (laughs) Who was making decisions in how the fire was fought? Well, it was the mayor, who I think was called Bloodsworth. Great name. (laughs) But actually, he was then Charles II. Can you imagine Elizabeth II making decisions and saying, pull down that street? Well, no, because she's 95 currently, but (laughs) even in a pomp, it's a very different way of work. And we just introduced the fact that this idea has changed through to today. Yeah. Then into key stage two, and I promise not all of my answers will be this rambly, actually a monarchy is a very common trend. Mm. Because if you think about it, Iron Age Britons, monarchy, we've got Boudicca or the other Iron Age. Then we've got the Roman emperor. Wouldn't have called himself a monarch, but actually was. Mm. Saxons, monarchy, Vikings, monarchy, ancient Egypt, a monarchy. Um, a child challenged me on that because he'd done a bit of Googling and he said it was a theocracy <laughs> because it was the high priest of all the temples. But actually, if you've got that clear understanding of what government is and the types of government, you can have a good conversation about it. Mm. But uh, just to point out to you, doesn't that make Athens stand out? Because mm. Athens is the world's first democracy and it really is an outlier based on the other ones. So, yeah, it just you can think about the way the role changes. You can think about how it's different. And the reason that child was asking me for theocracies, if you carefully put in retrieval practice, so just some questions, A, can they remember the term? Great, you've got that. Now let's link together the, the examples we've looked at. That's how he generated that knowledge. That happened once. I never expect it to happen again. I don't want people thinking this is literally 
you know, the everyday because it's not. In terms of the ones I tend to put in, aim number six, the only kind of things I tend to do is I put cultural and religious history together because religion is an aspect of culture. And I really emphasize achievements and legacy of what we learn to try and really emphasize just, well, what's the point of knowing that in relation to how it links through to today? Mm. Well, brilliantly crafted that answer there. I could have listened to you all day there. That was fantastic. Thank you. And sticking with that idea of curriculum design then, one thing we saw recently was that one of your followers asked about whether you think a, a very formal approach to history should begin with being key stage one. What are your thoughts on this and how would you approach it? So, spent ages thinking about this one, and it's a great question. It's a horrid question, <laughs> but that's what makes it such a good question. In all honesty, I don't have a definite decision. And one of the things that I quite like to say is I am happy to change my mind because I'm always one for nuance. Why are you choosing to do it that way over that way? In terms of examples, um, one thing that does concern me is if you try and bring the content in too early. So in certain schemes, I'm not going to name any, as there's always an idea behind any of them. Plus, I don't want to get you sued. I know at least one scheme teaches prehistory in year one because it's very much chronologically sequenced. Now, that is the most abstract of history in every facet of life for the youngest children. To me, content-wise, too much too soon. But it has to be part of a whole school decision. And the reason it has to be part of a whole school decision is we can't just have one subject being taught in one way, another subject being taught in another way. It has to form that so the children get used to the rules, the regiments and routines, which is why I am neither prog or trad. And if you are on Twitter, you'll know exactly what that means. <laughs> yes. Honestly, it does make me laugh. Twitter can be educational West Side Story. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Not enough dancing and clicking for my life. But we'll get there one day. So in terms of the approach, it depends on what's being taught. So, for example, year one, changes in living memory, start with something the children understand. Because in that case, it's a really nice bridge from early years into key stage one. Some of it can be done in a formal schooled way. Other elements are far more effective in a provision way. And it's, it's that that I can't quite make my mind upon. The issue with history is how abstract it is. So the earlier you start that really formal unpicking of the past, the more prior knowledge they're going to need. So, I mean, mentioned the Great Fire of London before. Just quickly think about how this relates to a child of six. Number one, they probably don't know very much, if anything, about the place. Therefore, that geographic concept of location and place needs to be pre-taught. The time period is fundamentally different. Therefore, how do we mitigate that? In that sense, there's some really good kind of immersive um, videos that you can just play to them. So you can and you just keep pausing and, and building up that knowledge base. And then it has a whole host of causes. It's not like one thing led to that. It's not this kind of you know, linear sequence. Then we've got technological considerations. We've got the decision making. So that's societal. It's political. The consequences. There's all sorts of implications for that. So in terms of how formal it is, I'd slightly change the nature of the question in that it depends on the content that you're teaching. The only thing to be said to say is you need to be really mindful of what do my children have to know about this world in which they're learning about before we proceed any further. And there's a lovely teacher, high school teacher called Mike Hill on Twitter. Um, He wrote an amazing blog on world building, which has been a massive influence. And it's the idea that because it's so abstract, we have to immerse children in it. Mm. 
if you immerse them in it, then actually the question you're posing and investigating becomes more achievable within those realms. So it stops this idea. It stops little little nuance and misconceptions happening because you place it in the right context. But yeah, it's it's a, that's a horrid question. Let's have less of those, please. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a very considered uh, answer, and I also wanted to just say how much I liked your uh, reference to the early years earlier. And I know you said you're not a specialist and we all who are not early year specialists get rather anxious about talking about the early years. But I thought that was a very nuanced, sensible answer. And it was probably refreshing for a lot of people to hear that when we talk about how the curriculum might connect back to the early years or how things in the early years might connect to that year one upwards curriculum. It doesn't have to be in that really formal sort of same structured way. You were talking about those kind of threads and through storytelling and so on. I just thought they were lovely links and how all that early vocabulary can start in such an informal way. So thank you for that. Mm. Um, Look, we know that the national curriculum refers to the idea of uh, local history studies as well. And I saw a great discussion on Twitter recently where People were talking about, ah, oh, does that have to be like one explicit unit or can local history come up at various points in various different units? Is there a rule around that? And um, yeah, what are your thoughts or, or your tips on that particular issue? So this is one of those ones where the detail of the curriculum is a double edged sword mm. in that it's this kind of framework approach of you need to do this, but we're not going to help you beyond that. Or we need you to cover this general idea, but the way in which you go about that, that's okay if you want to take it in different areas. Now, I have the absolute pleasure of working with uh, Bev Forrest, who is just my absolute mentor in all things history. She was my primary history uh, tutor whilst I was at university. And so it's an absolute joy to keep working with her. I will bow to her on everything local history. Um, She's just in the process of leading the Historical Association's Local History Fellowship for primary teachers. So I am totally not taking credit for the detail of this answer as I've (laughs) learned masses from her. In the short answer is no. There is no specific way in which it has to be met. What that means for us really is that you can do it in the way that you wish. But health warning, actually, how does that enact the curriculum you want? Mm. Because is it just a case of we need to do it so we're ticking the box? Local history is a bit of an outlier in that you cannot pick up a scheme. No, There are schemes that attempt to have local units in and they approach it in different ways. The risk of that is it becomes really uh, generic. And a good local history unit actually can start literally with the school building itself. Mm. The school I teach, uh, I'm a casual contract at, uh, in-house supply teacher is the correct title, I think. Our school building is over 100 years old. So guess what early years and key stage one's local history is going to be based (laughs) on? You would be surprised how often people don't, how they instantly try and go for the big hitters. Mm. So early as key stage one, start with what the children can see, start with what they can experience and actually go past. Because if you teach something that captures a child's imagination, you're probably going to wind the parents up because every time the children walk past that, they will tell that same fact. And that's when you know you've really caught them. In terms of local history, looking at things like the actual streets around them, because you might have terraced houses right next to a new development. Mm. That is such an easy way to show, well, actually, the nature of the locality has changed over time. If that's not possible for you, the local church. The local church was the absolute hub of the community, all the way from 
and in key stage one, we wouldn't start this early, but you know, do bear with me. This idea of church in the community, that's since we had conversion to Christianity, you know, middle of the Saxon period, mm. all the way through that real central and focal point. Mm. Obviously, if you've got a local Saxon church right next to you and you're not using it, that's madness. Yeah. In most areas, you usually find that they're kind of Victorian churches. Mm. They can mark history the whole way through from when they were built. And it's the idea of the world changing around this focal point. Uh, one of Bev's favourite things to do is uh, graveyards. <laughs> <laughs> I know it sounds a bit weird, but bear with me. Actually, it's really interesting to go and study what graves can tell us, what memorials can tell us, because you've got this idea of social history. There's lots of social history, the varied nature of the monuments, because the fancier a monument, obviously that tells you about wealth, standing in society in inverted commas. And... If you only look at locality through the lens of the wider periods of history, you're going to miss those wonderful local stories. My favourite one is local parks. Local parks usually have a name or did. And it's uh, quite often somebody that did really well in the Industrial Revolution donating that to the uh, local community, which I like to describe to teachers as thanks for making me stinking rich. <laughs> yeah. Have a feel. <laughs> Mischaracterisation, but it makes me smile. So I'm going with it. Health warning with using things like graveyards, cultural sensitivities. Some children will not want to go near grave, and that's totally okay. Other children will need to be taught how to behave in different situations. Totally fine, part of the role. But the idea of starting so locally is a really important one. If they understand the heritage of where they live, they're more likely to care, Yeah. which means it hopefully gets them to appreciate it, to look after it. Whereas it's really easy for things to just fall by the wayside mm. in terms of embedding throughout the core units that we teach you should totally do that as well yeah because it, it gives a really powerful vehicle for understanding so i mentioned great fire of london before i promise there are other examples that i'll use <laughs> but when i was working with a school in a couple of schools in bradford and leeds this year actually we are ne they're now doing a comparison of the bradford city fire of like the 1980s mm. yeah. to the great fire of london because it's a really simple way to mm. look at technological change these things still happen but the way in which they're handled is differently because technology's improved and therefore they're managed better the other good one that i like using uh, for the lead school was uh, we had some really serious flooding a few years ago and there's this amazing picture of what i can only describe as a prat being pulled behind a four by four surfing down Kirkstall Road. <laughs> if I was a student, he'd have been my hero. But now as a mature adult, -ish, um, I will describe him as a prat. And then as you go through key stage two, the curriculum suggests examples, non-statutory. So we don't have to use them. Mm. So I'm going to be lead set West Yorkshire centric here because that's where I am. Actually, there are examples we need to make use of to get the children to appreciate history happened around us through time. So when we teach Stone Age to Iron Age, where I am, we talk about Scarabray because it's a remarkable site. But we also talk about Star Car. Have you heard of it? No. no. So Star Car is a Mesolithic site of massive significance, and it's kind of towards Scarborough. And then I show them a photo of me walking uh, in the countryside and saying, this is a Neolithic standing stone circle. It's on Ilkley Moor. Actually, there were people where you lived through time. The only thing to do when you have these local examples is you need to be careful that it's not tokenistic because it's so easy just to have that, oh, well, we need to do a bit of local, right, check, done. It has to add value. Mm. If it doesn't add value, then actually 
what's the point? Yeah, it, it's just it's gone. So in that sense, when I'm teaching about the Romans, may have mentioned I quite like them. I make sure one of my inquiries on Roman York, and it's just a really simple inquiry for my year threes of what does the evidence tell us about Roman York, mm. and it emphasises that disciplinary angle of this is what the evidence is. This is how we learn from that evidence. And these are the conclusions that have been drawn. Mm. I'm not getting the children to form their own conclusions because they need to understand what the experts have said. Yeah. Because I remember when I was doing history early high school and it was uh, you were criticizing historians. Mm. And in hindsight, you're like, I'm 12. I don't know <laughs> I'm criticizing a professional historian with a degree <laughs> and higher. And I'm saying, well, actually, it's a, no. It's that sense of, well, actually, how did they come to that decision? Yeah. And just starting with a really simple idea of going, um, hmm, actually, we know this was significant because mm. one of my favorite ones from York was there was a, a suspected gladiator graveyard found on a place called Driffield Terrace. Mm. If I lived in Driffield Terrace, I totally would have moved because that's really creepy. But as a thing to learn from, it's brilliant. And it's mm. one of the inquiries. And we start with just the photographs and snippets of it and extracts. Yeah. And it allows the children to sh look at how different groups learn about the past. And because there were gladiators there, they can understand it was a significant settlement because actually economically, that's not going to be cheap. Socially, gladiators are a form of entertainment. They know about that from what they've read. What I have to do there is usually challenge a few misconceptions in that um, they tend to get really outraged that the Romans would watch people fight to the death. And all I like to do then is just bring up uh, just bring up the thing of who's ever heard of boxing? <laughs> who's heard of UFC or MMA? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah. And I say, well, the objective in those is to beat another person unconscious. <laughs> That's not massively distant from this now, is it? No. We just need to be really mindful that we, we kind of balance up the how we cover things. Yeah. Because if we're not careful, we'll just give it that 21st century viewpoint mm. and children will literally be outraged by everything. And Stuart, can I just nip in? That is just the most insanely good answer, by the way. I loved everything <laughs> about that. Uh, do you think there's a good opportunity sometimes with the significant people units or uh, studies in Key Stage 1 that are often done? Because we found that in our school, we, we do a study on Mary Anning. It's one of my most favourite units. Just an awesome, awesome person to study. But she would have only been sort of 40 minutes down the road from us. And I know that's not super local. But there's something about her and her background and her life that our children really, really relate to. You know, this, this girl from this pretty poor background that worked incredibly hard that did something amazing with her life and made such a contribution that just resonates with our children and it, it really hooks them on history early on just wonder what you what you thought about that yeah i love stories stories are brilliant and the stories of a person the children can almost see themselves in now in terms of just significance one of my big bugbears um of this is don't call significant somebody that's significant famous because A, it's factually wrong, and B, it has wild connotations for actually the 21st century. You ask who's famous today, you'll probably get a list of, well, people I've very rarely heard of. Yeah. Don't quite yeah. understand TikTok. I don't get it, <laughs> but okay, sure, yeah, tell me about that for mm. playtime. Actually, those stories are really helpful to you know, get us to engage with the past and look at the fact that Mary Anning was not significant when she lived. Mm. She wasn't, but actually it's only now where her real importance is being appreciated. And that helps us to understand about that changing roles in society. 
you know, think about the the women that we choose to teach about. And I am a massive proponent of having a representative and diverse curriculum. But we need to be careful who we choose to teach because there's some really kind of simple decisions we can make in good faith that can backfire. So, for example, if in Key Stage 1 we teach about uh, Elizabeth I, Queen Victoria and Elizabeth II and Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole, literally the only women the girls will learn about and the boys are nurses and queens. So actually breaking those stereotypes is really important. And then I adore going to things like the Historical Association Conference and the network, the forums that they run, because I learn about really interesting people. The person I love is Nora Nayak Khan. And I was introduced to her by someone who's now a friend, actually, called Sue. And Nor was of noble Indian birth. So it instantly challenges what it means to be a, you know, kind of a princess, in inverted commas. In the Second World War, she was essentially a spy in occupied France. She was a radio operator. And recently, she's just had a statue put up for her in London. That raises the idea of blue plaques. Blue plaques are always worth it. If you just search blue plaques in my area, you can literally find them and look at the stories that are out there that might be lesser told, but no less worth learning about. Um, somebody from where I teach is a man called Samuel Marsden. Unless you were from this area, you probably never heard of him. He was a parson, went over with the penal colonies to Australia. He was also the judge gave very harsh punishments. So uh, guess what the interpretation the locals gave of him? (laughs) But he also introduced uh, Christianity to a part of New Zealand. So the way in which he's thought of is is variable depending on where you look, because Christianity is so important to New Zealand. Where we are, uh, where I'm teaching, we're very much the wool wool and mill area. He had a role in bringing, I think it's Moreno wool to this country. So it's, it's those little stories that if you just... If you don't do a bit of digging, you won't find out. Mm. And the best people to get you started for those really local stories usually are the dinner staff and the teaching assistants because they tend to have lived in that community for years and years and they will know the little stories that you can hook onto. Mm. Um, The other good ones to look at are uh, your local community Facebook pages if you can get slightly ignore some of the interesting political viewpoints. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and then actually uh, contact the archive service because you probably have one. Use the uh, it's the British Association of Local History. Um, they've got a directory of all the local history groups. Just send them an email because most of the time they want to help and love working with teachers. The only thing to be wary of is it has to be collaboration. Yeah. With the best of intentions, they're not going to know how to work with very young children very often. So it has to be collaboration. And this is one you have to put the time and effort into. Mm. That's that's the distinction, uh, I'm afraid, on that one. But yeah, local story, stories about individuals, they're just wonderful to give those uh, role models. And what I really like over the last couple of years is those stories being told. And I don't think this is controversial, but I'm so sh- sure somebody will find a way to turn it into that. Actually, this is not decolonizing the curriculum, in my personal opinion. It's teaching an accurate, fair and representative narrative. Absolutely. It's teaching the stories of the people that were there. Maybe those narratives have gone by the wayside, but it doesn't mean they should for any longer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, there's always a danger when designing your own curriculum, and that is to actually allow our own personal interests and our biases to dominate that process 
what are your thoughts on how we can actually deal with this then and then provide like a genuine balance to the curriculum offer we give to children i like this question i really do because it's it's an it's another one where it's really nice to have the ability to think about this in in kind of real nuance Mm. i don't know how many times i've used the word nuance but i'm a big (laughs) fan so there's kind of three things I ask about the narratives that we choose to teach because history, it is a story driven subject. It is a narrative subject. There isn't one narrative. There are so many we can choose to, th- to consider. And if we're not careful, we're going to cherry pick the ones we want. So I always kind of give myself three kind of questions I ask. And then once I've done that, I'll ask a sub question, which so the first one is, is it an accurate narrative or am I misleading my children? Because most of the time, the majority of what they know comes from me as a teacher. So if I'm not careful, I am misleading them inadvertently, not saying it's uh, on purpose, not saying anything of the sort. Then is it a fair narrative? If I look at that with my sense of balance, does it actually give that sense of fairness or am I deliberately taking them down a pathway that probably wouldn't be open to that kind of scrutiny shall we say and then number three is is it representative not i mean i've said this before not because of that sense of you know a token gesture of oh well, it's the current trend actually because it needs to be representative so they can understand this abstract world that they're learning about and then once you've done that then it's a time to look at it and go so now that we've written this what does it tell us about us as a school and then you marry that, marry that up with the perennial intent documents, which you can't help but giggle at. So a top tip, if you have to write an intent document and nobody said you do, <laughs> top tip is stop spending two pages saying this one sentence. We teach the national curriculum. <laughs> Literally, say you teach national curriculum and then think to yourselves, what do we as a school want to get across? What are we valuing? And that's where if I help with curriculum design, it's that sense of locality, the children understanding the connections between where they are and the wider world. For example, my uh, up key stage two children, when they learn about uh, the wool industry, because it's where it was, we always spend time getting them to understand that not everywhere had the wool industry. Mm because otherwise they may very well go about thinking that. Another idea is about things like chronology. Children make massive generalizations because they're trying to make sense of things. The idea of, what do you mean not everybody at this time was an Egyptian? That's right, there were other groups alive at this time. And it's that sense of clarity that we need. Thing to try and avoid. In the past, because of the kind of agenda at the time, let's call it, English specification has dominated proceedings. It led very much to kind of English outcomes. You know, we've got writing moderation in year two and six. That has to play a role in what we do. Totally okay with that. But if we're teaching a perspective because it leads to a great battle piece of writing that we then write about, Mm. nope, not for me. Mm. It's not for me. Our history outcome is a diary entry, a newspaper report. I'm not a fan, personally, never have. And that's because if we're not careful, the actual knowledge... An understanding that we want the children to have is very much a distant secondary to all of those grammatical skills, etc., that we want them to apply. Um, and Tim Jenner, in the recent, I think it's the blog, History and Outstanding Primary Schools, he wrote about anachronistic writing tasks, and I let out a little cheer. <laughs> uh, and the reason I did that is because you're right, you, you shouldn't write a newspaper report about the Viking invasion of Anglo-Saxon England. There were no newspapers. No. 
there were no newspapers, therefore it's invalid. And, you know, when you think about it going, if I say newspaper report, the children are going to try and put in the features because that's what they've been taught to do. And that's fine. That's kind of what we want in the past. But as far as I know, please correct me if I'm wrong, anybody that happens to be listening, I don't know of any uh, Anglo-Saxon farmers who were interviewed by this newspaper, <laughs> which didn't exist, and told about the Viking longship sailing down the river at the bottom of his fields. It just, that idea of actually, let's write a really good history answer. Mm. Let's get them to write in a, you know, kind of what a historian would write. And this is where we can just have that thought process of going, if we choose to teach a really clear and genuine narrative, then those outcomes we can do effectively. If you want to do those English links, we've got a subject called English. <laughs> Therefore, feel free to do it in your English lessons where you can have that historical application mm. as a secondary because of what you're focusing on. And then, so when I'm planning a unit of work, I follow an idea that I saw Rich Kennett who uh, did a keynote address at the Yorkshire History Forum. And he put a slide up of loads of things we could very conceivably teach about the Romans with a very clear sense of why, but we were only allowed to pick five. Mm. And that's, it's that kind of thought process. So when I'm planning things, I'll literally put in and I'll go, right, I have to do that because of what the curriculum tells me. I have to do that. I have to do that. This is important because actually it's fundamental to that way of life. Mm. And it's that idea of, you know, kind of ranking. No longer can we get away with having loads of isolated lessons. We have to teach that narrative. So, another rambly answer. Uh, two bits. Number one, a sense of period. And I mentioned world building before. You have to build that world and your early lessons have to put this period of history into context. So number one, timelines. Love timelines. Number two, actually, we have to link the geography. There is that absolute inexorable link between physical geography and human history. Yeah. I mean, human geography, human history, they're totally overlapped. And if you don't really embed that at the start, it's really hard to piece together what comes next. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is, you know, kind of that diversity that I mentioned before. The fact that we can't just teach about the, the rich and the famous, the wealthy, the, the real. We have to look at the, you know, the role of women, ordinary people, and then local variations if it relates to where we live. Context is so important so that the children don't reach those ill-informed judgments. And an example that I, I have fallen foul of in the past, you know, when you teach the Greeks, when you teach Athens, of course you would city-states. Number one, you have to start with the fact that Greece wasn't a unified country because it wasn't. You've got these independent city-states that have really different and nuanced cultures. So then we'll teach about Athens, we'll teach about Sparta, totally should. The fact that in Athens, they had the world's first democracy. If you've embedded the concept of government, they understand that stands out. Mm. And then in the past, I've kind of almost played into the fact that some of the children get really cross because women couldn't vote. And they look at it and go, that's not fair. The answer to that is we acknowledge this presentist viewpoint in the 21st century of saying, you're right, it's not fair. But now let's compare it to the other systems of government we've learned about. The fact that it's not fair, but it's a heck of a lot fairer than Sparta, where they had an oligarchy, they had a dual kingship. Mm -hmm. Or how about Pharaoh, one person making decisions? It's not fair, but it's a massive step to fairness. Yeah. And then the other thing is actually this 21st century world that we've got. If we go back just over 100 years ago, no women in this country could vote. Mm -hmm. 
So to children today, it's normal, but that's a really recent change. Another couple of examples, if I might. There's a Cheddar Man, who's a really interesting source of evidence for prehistory. In two, I think it's two thousand, not very long ago, 2018. They used kind of DNA technology to reconstruct what he may have looked like. People in prehistoric Britain didn't have light skin. Mm. And it's that kind of acknowledgement of, it's not a gotcha moment. It's not, ha, ah, look at all your pictures. You're wrong. It's actually just going, this is what they may have looked like. Mm-hmm. The fact that on Rome, the Roman soldiers on Hadrian's Wall, they came from other parts of the empire. Because if you've got this massive empire, you need a lot of soldiers. Yeah. And it's not a great idea to train thousands of soldiers and get them to defend where they come from, because they might want to take it back. Mm. And then the, just one example, kind of Roman York and the ivory bangle lady, a body that was found, had really kind of had grave goods around her that showed she had a standing and was of African heritage. Yeah. It's just an example that shows the kinds of people that lived in York at the time. And then we get to look at that and go, oh, actually, yeah, that's quite interesting. Here's one example. It's just presenting them the past as it was. Here is an example. Awesome. Hey, you've spoken a few times there, Stuart, about uh, chronology. I know it's one of your, or oh, it lights you up, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> love, love, love a bit of chronology. So what advice would you give to schools on how we do develop that from, from a young age and how we effectively build that kind of mental model of chronology over time? And you've already said that perhaps Stone Age and Year One, not your cup of tea necessarily. So how can we still do that? Okay, couple of things. Number one, what's the purpose of it? And can you imagine teaching geography without maps? It sounds insane. This is kind of what you're trying to do if you don't use timelines consistently in history. So the purpose of timelines, twofold. Number one, it's a concept itself. It helps us unpick and plot that narrative that we're teaching. But then also it's a graphic organiser. So it's a, it's a graphic way of presenting statistical information, be that an overall big picture of history when you look at these blocks of time that interact, that overlay, or a really finite, tiny duration of time. Think of, you know, if depending on your curriculum structure, you spend half a term on the Stone Age to Iron Age. That's give or take 2.5 million years. <laughs> and then you spend a half term teaching the Second World War, which is six years. The children aren't naturally going to associate the fact that one is a tiny proportion of the other. So this is why we need those kind of, you know, those accurate scaled graphic representations. And it's really important that this is just how I like to do it. I'm sure there's a lot of other ways. Number one, I try and keep them visually simple. The reason I keep them visually simple is because it makes reading them so much easier. You can, you can get some really beautiful bespoke made ones and they're stunning, but if they're so busy that you can't actually read them without having to ignore all the prettiness, it becomes much harder to use them for the purpose. So for me, I have two types of timeline that I use. The uh, overall narrative, big picture, that I use blocks, just blocks. Then it makes them think of bar models because actually, you know, it's that representation. And if, as far as is possible, you scale them accurately, the children can can compare the relative duration. The only thing you can't scale is anything with the Paleolithic in, because it's two point, you know, it's like a couple of million years compared to 400 years. So if you imagine on a meter stick, the Paleolithic alone is 99 centimeters, nine, and quite a few other nine mil of the, you know, the final, and literally everything else is this tiny chunk. 
So we, we kind of have to mitigate uh, that. The way I mitigate this overall narrative is just a, a teaching tool that I use all the way from year one upwards, which is physical distance equals chronological duration. Further away in distance, further away in the past. And if it's so far, I can't scale it, I use an arrow. And that's a teaching point. So what we have to do is we have to think really carefully and mindfully and go, right, see that arrow, what does it tell us? You know, like we would in maths, like we would in English, we recap. Can you imagine teaching the three times table by counting through it once and saying, we've done it once, you've got it. Mm. it bonkers, absolutely bonkers. And now we're going to talk about chronology. I mean, we all know how much fun teaching time is in maths, yet we try and condense it into like a five minute sequencing activity at the start of a, a, start of a topic. It, its purpose is to set out the narrative that we're teaching. Let's look at the big pictures. So, you know, when I made that link before between uh, the human history and geography, you have to have timelines and maps straight away. The reason you have to do that is because you can have two timelines existing at exactly the same time, but the people never interacted with each other. Why? Well, example, the Maya, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Saxons, the Vikings, they're all concurrent with the Maya. But as far as I know, they never interacted. Why? Because there's an ocean in the way. If you don't have that crossover of the two, you can't naturally make that link. Just if there's any archaeologists or historians listening, I know I can't prove that statement. I'm giving a strong, educated guess that their canoes didn't make it over the Atlantic. Happy to be wrong. <laughs> and then purpose. Because the purpose is to set out the narrative we're teaching, it needs to be a focal point. If you get one that you download from a website or anything like that, and it's so high in the classroom, the children can't see it. Actually, what's it doing there other than getting in the way? doesn't work so if possible have it the central focus of your display because every time you teach something what you need to do is you go to time saying right today we're going to be learning about this it comes after what you've learned about this and before that so you set the scene right at the start and then you can just keep coming back to it and the children's work or with the children's work you just add to it so if you haven't used working walls just add that depth of knowledge in the same way as if you use knowledge organizers you know that list of core knowledge in history, it can very easily be chronologically underpinned. All it does is it sets it out in an organised manner because it starts to look at what's going on. If you just do the classic task of, right, children, we're going to sequence these picture cards collaboratively because we have to, let's be honest, two children are involved if you're lucky, the rest are talking about lunchtime. And then you walk around with your camera or iPad. Um, sorry, I'm of a generation pre-iPad. <laughs> um, I said that to some, some early career teachers the other week. And they were, you know, and they look and go, you are. <laughs> that existed. You yeah. are. <laughs> and then you look at it and then the children are kind of trying to do it. But actually, what are they taking in from this? I mean, we'll ignore, we'll pretend they're all involved. Let's be honest, it probably didn't happen. But then the ones that are involved, what are they actually looking at? I would hazard a guess they're looking at the numbers and not the historical content, which means your history lesson is literally just a sequencing task of two and three digit numbers. And then we, you know, we obviously take a photograph of the children all sat behind grinning their heads off with two thumbs up going, oh, I've done no work and I know it. And then what you fail to do is get the children to actually learn about what's going on in that timeline. So you have to spend time a thinking about what it's being constructed, what you're constructing and then B get them to actually read the information. Because if they don't read the information, it's pointless. Exception to that, key stage one. Um, in key stage one, you're probably going to read it. You might, you might get them to sequence it. Then you make the scale timeline. And then I quite like getting the children in key stage one to jump back in time. I know it sounds like a gimmick, and I'm not a fan of gimmicks, but actually that's literally what they're going to do. 
make your timeline in the hall or along the corridor and just the teacher accurately scales where things go. And you just get the children to jump to various points in the timeline to get them to see this is going further in the past because in key stage one, start your timelines with now. Now is something they'll be familiar with from early years because the new ELG is now and past. And then the further it is away from now, the further in the past. And it just helps them to start piece together going, oh, we've got these random gaps between them. Further in, yeah, it's further in the past. And then use the timeline more often. It's there. You've, you've done all that hard work, but you need to make use of it. Otherwise, it's literally not adding any value. If you stick it in your book, why? That I always have, lots of people say, lots of people say, we want to stick timelines in books, to which my question is, why? Mm-hmm. What value is it adding? Because you know if it's just a random page, you know, at the start of your topic. If it's a random page at the start of your topic, it's going to take a week and a half for some children to find it. Therefore, you could, if you have history books, you might put it right at the start of the book or right at the back. That would work. Or have it on your have it on your your screen. Have it at the centre of your display so it's easy to get to and train the children to go and look to make links. Because if you keep if you can keep it up, you know the big picture of the work of that kind of big picture timeline. You teach about an artist. Where would they go on our timeline? A composer, where would they go on our timeline? Those links between RE and history, Romans and Christianity, it's an easy one to make. Um, story of Moses and the Egyptians, it's an easy one, that kind of interdisciplinary link. Actually, you can look at, in RE, we don't know exactly when things happened necessarily, but you can give that sense of gist, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Honestly, your answers are unparalleled. They're so in-depth and understandable. I love it. Nerd. <laughs> one final question i've got for you is um, we spoke about value there and what we're giving children but one thing we need to be wary of like with any subject is the teaching of harmful misconceptions can you give us any examples of this in primary history that we could well do uh, avoiding yeah the ones that i'm going to list i i I don't know whether i'd call them necessarily harmful Hmm. but i think Everything that primary teachers do is always done with the best of intentions. Yeah. And it's it's done from a really good place because being a primary teacher is really hard. Um, and I know I can talk at length about primary history. If you ask me about art, this would have lasted about 14 seconds. <laughs> and this is why the ones I'm saying now, no judgments, no anything. It's just these are ones that can be quite easily mitigated. We can quite easily look at them and go, do you know what? Actually, we can do this a different way. So, number one, hook days. So there's so many different words for this. There's so many different phrases for this. So you might not know hook day, wow day, stunning start, <laughs> scintillating, that kind of ilk. And we just need to be careful that the type of activities we do are valid in a historical sense. That's much harder if you're doing a topic-led approach. If you're doing a topic-led approach, you might look at kind of, um, I'm going to use the Greeks as an example because it's one of my favourite ones. Actually, you need to be really careful. So this is about modern Greece. We can't say the same about ancient Greece. For example, I'm pretty confident the ancient Greeks didn't eat hummus off carrot sticks. (laughs) And it's just one of those ones where we just need to be a little bit more explicit. The other thing is, we know how crowded the curriculum is. So actually, let's make sure the tasks we complete on these days are purposeful let's get them to feed into what comes next so if you're going to do ones like that the things i would do is make massive timelines i love making massive timelines get in the hall get in the corridor four four of the same timelines going up once get them to interact with it world building what was greece like great let's get maps out children love maps maps are cool 
but just be really careful about the things that crop up because actually it's really easy to sow in misconceptions just inadvertently dressing up for things like that i've 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 grown out of it as a teacher i think Um, if you want to do it fine but let's if somebody comes in a costume that's really not historically valid just obviously we're not going to shame them that would be wrong that'd be It'd be quite an entertaining sketch on a comedy programme, but it'd be definitely be wrong. I think Greg Davis would do that on one of his, uh, one of his <laughs> yeah. sitcoms. That's totally something he'd do. He'd pull the tea towel off their head. <laughs> yeah, totally. But just looking and going and just make sure the children in the lessons get the chance to see an accurate depiction because it's... I'm deviate from the Greeks back onto prehistory. It's really easy to just reinforce wrong stereotypes. So a friend of mine, her husband's an archaeologist, and he did a session once that I watched... And it was, uh, and he spoke about children coming in prehistoric clothing. And I mean, you're probably going to know what the, most of them turned up in. It's like the classic Flintstonian garb. And he just looked, and uh, there was one child allegedly that was dressed in a dressed appropriately. And he said, "Do you know why little Jimmy, let's call him, is dressed in the right way?" Right, children. When it's winter, would you go outside in just your pants? Cue absolute hysteric hilarity because we use the word pants. That's probably just from the staff. <laughs> No, why? Because it's cold. People in prehistory knew what cold was. And it's so easy to just wrongly present people in the people in the past. And there are some books out there which are just really insulting yeah. uh, to people. And you just think about what they accomplished from literally nothing. Can you imagine doing that to a group of people that were still alive today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Abhorrent. Mm. And obviously, you know, we've we've developed in inverted commas beyond that. But just think, is it have we got that genuine narrative in place? Because it's so easy not to. When the podcast is finished, I'll tell you what two of the terrible ones are. Um, (laughs) The other the second one is this one, I think, comes from the old reading APP grids. Do you remember those? Oh, Oh. they were. <laughs> oh, they were the be all and end all and a nightmare. I think it's like upper level into level five when you when children had to think about bias. Mm. Now, the teaching of bias is something we have to just kind of be slightly more careful with because there's this kind of assumption that when we teach testimonial sources like um, an account of something, a diary, that it's a biased source, therefore it's unhelpful. I mean, it's not true, quite frankly. It's not true. Every source has value. It depends on the question that we're asking and we have to take account of the intention and the perspective of the author. So one of my favourite ones uh, that I like to use in kind of training sessions is the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. It's brilliant and it's one of the few sources from the time period. And um, if you just teach it verbatim, the Vikings get a bad press. But you need to look more deeply into this because you actually have to look and get the children before they start reading it to understand the people that wrote it were devoutly Christian Saxon monks who just had their holy relics nicked, their brothers in God brutally murdered, and their holy sites pillaged. Strangely, that means the the Saxon monks aren't a fan of the Vikings. Whereas if you don't go, if you don't give that prerequisite knowledge going in, you can't enable the children to fully engage with it. Whereas if you give them that knowledge to start with and saying, actually, now that you know that, this gives you a different impression. And then the last one, and this one's really difficult. So it, this is this is the one that I was kind of really tempted not to mention, but I think it's an important one. This is more of an aspiration. And if a teacher listens to this and goes, do you know what? No, not going to happen. 
we are generalist teachers. So, you know, if this is the one that you think out of everything, no. Don't oversimplify complex histories. History is nuanced, it's complicated, and it's such an exciting field of study. Um, I posted something the other day of uh, that just totally reimagined my thoughts around the Vikings. Um, it was this video that I found on the BBC, and it's this. What we need to do is we need to acknowledge the fact that history is really complicated, and we need to do it justice as far as we can. So instead of trying to cram in literally everything you think about, take rid of some of that superfluous stuff and spend more time on that real core understanding, that sense of period you want the children to gain. And what that allowed you to do is to debate things, discuss them and interrogate the available evidence. And that's where naturally you can start to bring in that disciplinary side of history. Because if you just teach in facts and facts and facts, and then you do retrieval practice of the same facts, and then you reteach the facts, they'll learn loads of things, but it's just that anecdotal pub quiz knowledge that we definitely want to avoid. What we do when we start to interrogate it is we, um, we historicize it. We give it that historical context and we can really start to make those links and develop understanding to develop perspective about the past that based on a really sound grasp, not just I did a worksheet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, as I say, that's hard. That takes time. And that's why kind of curriculum development it would be wonderful if we got loads of time to do it, but do it as best you can so that as far as is possible, we can get that nuanced, complex loveliness, which we call history as well as we can. Wow. What a great answer. Stuart, I'm torn here. I've sat here torn between feeling like, oh my God, I wish I'd had this conversation three years ago when I started my curriculum development. And two, feeling really grateful that I'm having it now because curriculum development is never done. And, you know, when we spoke to Andrew Percival about his curriculum, he made that so clear, like, this is a thing that will continue to develop in your school for years. So what I would say to people, if they're listening and feeling a mixture of awe and overwhelm in listening to you is, look, what a great opportunity to just look at a few bits and bobs that you do and refine them based on some of the things we've heard today. You have given the most phenomenal advice about primary history, your passion for this subject Honestly, mate, amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I don't think our listeners ever heard me shut up for so long. So that's a credit. <laughs> that is a credit to you. <laughs> can, I, can I just finish with one thing? Please. The most important thing to ask yourself, and this is just about your curriculum in general, is what does your curriculum say about you as a school? Mm. Because that sense of culture, that what you place that importance on, that sense of identity, that, that's one thing to whatever subject you have, just to really consider that. That's a great question. Yeah, That's yeah. a great question. Stuart, how can people find out more about you and the work you do? Because you've been very humble and you haven't plugged any of your uh, history of Mr. <laughs> T stuff. Tell us about that because you, you, you do some teaching, but you've got this whole other world of training that you do as well. Yeah. Uh, so um, you can find me on Facebook by searching Mr. T does primary history because as primary teachers, it has to rhyme. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter, which is Mr. Underscore S underscore Tiffany, I think. And then the website is mrtdoeshistory.com. I have a YouTube channel, search for Mr. T's Primary History, where I'm just, at the moment, just making some free chronology videos that can go up in the, that you can just play in the classroom, or you can use as a teaching tool to help you develop. Um, yeah, get in touch that way if you wish. But yeah, just like to share things about primary history because I'm a massive nerd. You are, but we, we love you for it. Thank yes. you, Stuart. It's been lovely talking to you today. <laughs> a pleasure. Great way to spend the night. Thank you. Don't shoot the deputy.